so that uh, song we just sang is like a big deal in my in my life. When Chad introduced it, it was at a time when uh, I was going through some very difficult things, and that song just ministered to me over and over again, knowing that earth has no sorrow, that heaven can't heal. But I want to ask this morning, the title of that song is uh, Come As You Are. Come As You Are. And I want to ask uh, us the question, what makes us think we can come as you are? What makes us think we can apply that song to our lives? Uh, What gives us the right to come to God as we are? And I believe that's what we've been talking about over the past two weeks we talk about it all the time, but really focusing in on it, zeroing in on it in our study through the book of Romans, beginning in Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 21, all the way to verse 30 that we got to last week. We've seen what makes biblical Christianity unique among the world's religions. We've seen why we can come as we, we are, namely because of God's justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from the works of the law. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2, 8 and 9, uh, familiar verses to many, Paul summarizes what he's been explaining more, in more detail in Romans. So let me read this to you sort of as a summary. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. By God's grace, His unmerited favor, undeserved favor, as a a free gift, those who are unrighteous, sinful, unclean before God can be justified. And that word justified, and we'll talk more about that this morning, means to be counted righteous. We'll explain that more. So we can be justified, counted righteous, through faith, through trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, trusting in the sacrificial death of Christ as this, uh, this other word that we've seen, as this propitiation, this atonement, this payment, this covering, this ransom for our sins, trusting that Christ's redeeming work on the cross and, and His resurrection from the dead releases us from guilt and from condemnation, allows us to come into the presence of God, knowing that there's nothing we can add to Christ's finished work, knowing that justification, being declared righteous, being counted righteous, comes apart from, it comes without the works of the law. Therefore, no one can boast. As Paul wrote in Romans 3.28, we saw last week, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There's nothing. An unrighteous, sinful people, and, and we spent a lot of time making sure we knew that included us all. Paul spent a lot of time in Romans in the beginning making us understand that there's nothing any of us can do to earn our justification. No amount of trying No amount of doing our best to obey the law will give us our righteousness. No amount of good works will save us from the the sin and and from the wrath of God. So, So this is a summary of what we've seen over the past two weeks. Justification, 
being declared, being counted as righteous before God is by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. But this brings up some interesting questions, right? Especially thinking about the law, thinking about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, 66 books. If you have a Bible, pull it out. The Old Testament's a big part of it. 39 of the 66 books, Old Testament, Old Covenant. So what about the law? If faith is the answer, then why did God give the law? If all those commandments designed for right living could not make anyone righteous, then why did God give them? Paul, in Romans 3.31, asks the question this way. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He's just explained justification by grace through faith. Does this overthrow the law? Does the teaching of Paul and others that justification comes by faith alone, apart from the law, does this make the law worthless? Does it overthrow the law? That word overthrow means to destroy or to abolish, to put an end to. Is the law no more? Does justification by faith alone destroy the law? And based on what Paul has said, based on what we've just read, that justification is by faith alone, it might seem like the right answer is yes. You might seem follow yes, the law is abolished. The law has been overthrown, destroyed by faith. But Paul's answer is by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. No, it's just the opposite. We, by our teaching, by teaching justification by faith, Apart from the law, we uphold the law. That word uphold means to stand by. It means to establish. Paul stands by the law. His teaching establishes the law. So the question then becomes, how does Paul, preaching justification by faith apart from the law, and yet establish the law or stand by the law? Well, that's what Romans 4 is going to show us. That's what we'll see beginning today. But let me give a short answer first, uh, sort of in review of some of the things we've seen already. The question is, how does justification by faith, apart from the law, uphold the law? And the answer is found if you understand the purpose of the law. The problem is that people today, Jews and others, have assumed, continue to assume, did assume that the law was designed to justify That the law, which teaches righteousness, was therefore meant to make people righteous. Okay, The law is teaching us how to be righteous, therefore the law is meant to make us righteous. That by keeping the law, you would become righteous before God. I mean, that's not a totally stupid idea, right? But it's an unbiblical idea. Because the Bible, including the Old Testament, including the law, does not teach that anyone can be made righteous by keeping the law. The purpose of the law was never to teach justification, righteousness, by works of the law. Paul already made that clear, Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No one will ever, has ever, or will ever be justified, made righteous by the law. 
by keeping the law. The purpose of the law is not justification. The purpose of the law is to reveal our sin. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, the purpose of the law is to show that we are, that you are, that I am, a sinful people. To reveal our sinful hearts. Put simply, the purpose of the law is to show that we are unrighteous sinners in need of a Savior. To show that we cannot live up to the righteous, holy standards of God. To lead us to the understanding that justification, our righteousness, only comes by grace through faith. So Paul's teaching of justification by grace through faith upholds the law because the purpose of the law was and is to show our need for justification by grace through faith. Does that make sense? Just say yes. Help me. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. I think that's interesting, though. The purpose of the, if we understand the purpose of the law, it's to show us we need the grace of God. It's to show us we can't do this. And so Paul says, now I, everything I'm saying is just upholding, is just, is just showing us the truth that you should have known already by the law. And that's what Paul argues in Romans chapter 4. He does this by, and, and there are other ways he could have done it, but he does this by using the example of Abraham, of, specifically of Abraham's justification. He uses Abraham to show that even before the Mosaic law came, justification, I keep saying the word justification over and over because that's what we're talking about, but just so we understand, let me, let me, justification means being counted righteous, and we'll talk more about that, but that's, the, that's, that's when you're saved. That's, we could be saying salvation. Justification isn't necessarily salvation, but it's because of our justification that we can be saved. So think of it that way. Justification, our salvation, was by grace through faith alone. That justification, by grace through faith, is not only the foundation of the Christian faith, but it's the foundation of the entire Bible. So Paul turns to Abraham as evidence for this truth. As evidence that he is upholding the law. But before we look at Abraham's justification, which starts in Romans 4.1, specifically 2 and 3, I want us to first answer the question, uh, who is Abraham? Some of us know who Abraham is. Some of us, we did a, I don't know, we studied the life of Abraham a number of years ago here together. We went from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 25 and a study of the life of Abraham. So if you're here, this will be review. But maybe you sort of heard of Abraham, but now let me just give you just briefly for our purposes what we need to know about Abraham. We need to know who Abraham is to understand why Paul uses him as an example. Abraham is first mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 11, uh, begins with the, the incident known as the Tower of Babel. Have you guys heard of the Tower of Babel? After the fall, Adam and Eve sinned, there was a flood. You know, everybody but Noah and his family were destroyed. By the way, uh, how was Noah saved? Noah found grace. in the. So even Noah, we could have used Noah. We could have been talking about Noah and how he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So after the fall and the flood, God commanded His people to fill the earth. But in disobedience, they remained together in one place. And 
some genius had the idea of building a tower to heaven. And so God came down as they were building this tower, and he confused their languages, and he dispersed them uh, into different people groups throughout the world. These people groups were made up of all of these people uh, that were at this tower who were disobeying God. These, These were fallen, sinful, unrighteous people. And therefore, at this point in history, the world is filled with these uh, all humanity, every one of these people groups separated from and under the wrath of God. But God, by His grace, begins then to implement His plan of salvation. And that plan began by God choosing one man. And that man's name was Abram, which later He changed to Abraham. And so at the end of Genesis 11, we're introduced to Abraham and his family. We find out that they were originally from Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a pagan city in in southern Babylonia. In Joshua chapter 24-2, God's speaking of the time before God called Abraham. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Nahor was... Abraham's brother. Abraham came from a pagan family, and they worshipped and served other gods. His family and culture didn't introduce him to the one true God. Abraham himself was probably a pagan. He was uh, certainly, uh, like all humanity, a sinful, sinful and unrighteous. Yet God chooses him. And we see that in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Now the Lord came to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God, by His grace, there's no reason given here why Abraham got chosen, but He reveals Himself to Abraham. And God called him to come out of his people. God's going to make a new people. Through Abraham, God promises him a new land and, and more in Genesis 12, 2. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises to make Abraham, take him to a, land, a new land, uh, make him into a great nation, make his name great, to bless him and through him that all the families on the earth would be blessed. All the people groups, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Now there are huge implications from these promises that God gives to Abraham. The hugest being that its ultimate fulfillment comes in Jesus Christ. That it's through Christ, the descendant of Abraham, that all the families of the earth will be blessed. But what I want us to see right now is that from Abraham would come this nation of Israel. Uh, that Abraham was the father of the Jews. He was the first of the three, uh, what we call patriarchs of the Jewish people. Through his son, it went Abraham, and then his son Isaac. Isaac, who was the child of promise. And his grandson Jacob, who God changed his name to be Israel. And from Jacob came the twelve tribes. Abraham was the father of the fathers of the Jews. The father of God's chosen people. The father of those who received and who revered the law. We sang about Abraham at our VBS if you were here. Father Abraham. All right. 
And, and, and next week we'll talk about this fact. I am one of them, and so are you. So, but we'll, we'll get there next week. All right, let's, let's, let's close here with this song. Uh, but more than just being the father of those who receive the law, Abraham is known for his obedience. His obedience to God even before the law was given. He's like this, this hero of his people. Lifted up. He's held up as an example of what it means to be obedient to God. His, his willingness, if you, if you know the story, his willingness to obey God and to offer his, his, the child of promise, Isaac, as a sacrifice is seen as sort of this ultimate picture of obedience. Abraham's willing to give it all. Abraham's willing to give what God promised. This made him this model of obedience to such an extent that the rabbis of Paul's day taught that, that Abraham was justified, that Abraham was saved by his works of obedience. He's our example because he, he, he obeyed and we need to obey. But Paul's just stated that justification, salvation, is by grace through faith. And this would cause someone to say, but what about our father Abraham? What about our hero Wasn't he justified by his works of obedience? And so Paul begins chapter 4 by answering the question, how was Abraham justified? In Romans 4.1, Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Our, Our ancestor. Paul's asking, what did our forefather, our hero Abraham, gain? And how did he gain it? Basically, Paul is, is, is asking, how was Abraham justified? And in verse 2, he answers, For if Abraham was justified by works, which everybody assumed, maybe not everybody, but with the, the people he's talking to assumed, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul returns to this theme of, of boasting we saw last week. Remember, he says that justification by faith excludes boasting. There's no boasting for those who are justified by faith. If we are declared righteous by the grace of God through nothing we've done, nothing we've earned, and as a gift to those who put their their God-given faith in Christ, then there's no boasting. But if Abraham, or if anyone else for that matter, is justified by works of obedience, then he would have something to boast about, right? Paul says, however, Abraham could not boast before God. Abraham couldn't boast in his justification. Why? Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Don't take my word for it, Paul says. Let's look at what the Bible, what the Old Testament says about how Abraham, our forefather, our hero, was justified. And then he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. We'll get to that in a second. Let me give you the context of Genesis 15, 6. In Genesis 15, verses 1 through 5, God comes to Abraham, and he restates, it's been some time, uh, Abraham, uh, chapter 12, when Abraham was called, uh, he was 75 years old, okay? Now, it's been some time has passed. He's between 75 and 80 right now. And God comes to him, and he restates the promise he gave to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. And at this point, none of these promises have been fulfilled. They haven't even really begun to be fulfilled. No land, no great nation, no great name, no blessing of any families on the earth. In fact, Abraham didn't even have a son. And his wife Sarah was barren. They were old people. 
They were beyond childbearing years. So no earthly hope that these promises would ever be fulfilled. But in Genesis 15.6, after God has reconfirmed these promises, we read, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. Simply believed God. He had faith that God would fulfill his promises. That God would do what he said. And God counted it, counted his faith, to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified, counted as righteous by God's grace through faith. And that's what Paul points out in Romans 4.3, where he quotes Genesis 15.6. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it, his belief, his faith, was counted to him as righteousness. To be counted righteous equals this word justification that we've been talking about. Abraham was justified by grace through faith. He believed the promises of God, and it, his belief, his faith in God, was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what does it mean for Abraham and for us to be counted righteous? What is the meaning of justification? That's our third point this morning. Justification means, like I said, to be counted righteous. And to understand what that means, to understand the implications, what it implied for Abraham, what it implies for us, we need to better understand this, 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 this one word here, counted. Very important uh, word that Paul uses, and he uses throughout his writings, not just here, but in other places. It's the Greek word logizomai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that well, well or not. It's been translated uh, to reckon, or to consider, or to impute. I know those aren't super helpful words, but it's also been translated in a word we're more familiar with. In the NIV and the NASB, it's translated accredited. When used in a financial context, it means to deposit something, to credit something into someone's account, to credit your account. Because Abraham believed God's promises, promises that, as we said, ultimately point to to Jesus Christ, God credited righteousness to his account. And if you believe God's promises about Jesus Christ, God credits righteousness into your account. And this means three main things. This means three main things. First, if righteousness is credited to your account, you are immediately justified. You're immediately right before God. God considers you. He credits you with. He reckons. He imputes you with righteousness. And therefore, you can, greatest truth in the Bible, enter into relationship with God. You can be in relationship with God. You've moved from your state of sinful uncleanness into being seen, considered, reckoned as righteous. And upon death, once you're justified, once you've been uh, counted righteous, upon death, you can enter into heaven. So being counted righteous means you immediately and eternally enter into relationship with a righteous and holy God. See, this is what enables us. I mean, we talked about God is, God is uh, 
righteous and holy. How could he have relationship with a sinful people? This is how, through, through justification by faith, by trusting in Christ who paid the penalty for our sins. So we enter into this relationship, but that's not all. Second, if righteousness is credited to your account, you enter into a process of becoming righteous. That process is called uh, sanctification. We need to understand that being counted righteous, being credited with righteousness, does not automatically make you righteous people who do always do the righteous thing. We know this by experience, don't we? Well, at least I do. That when we put our faith in Christ and are justified, we don't automatically stop sinning. Becoming righteous is a process that begins at justification. That begins when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. When you're counted righteous. Romans uh, 6.19, Paul writes, For just as you were once... For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification, purification. We call this process of sanctification. When we're counted righteous, when righteousness is credited to our account, we have God's righteousness in our account, but if we want it to impact our lives then we must make withdrawals from the account. I know this is a little crude. In a sense, we must uh, transfer that righteousness into our lives. And how do we do that? How do we make those transfers? How, do we, how are we sanctified? How do we enter into this process? Paul says by presenting our members, that's ourselves, not to lawlessness, not to sin. We don't continue to be slaves to sin but being slaves to righteousness. By doing the righteous things that God, our Master now, commands us to do. By trusting in... It it begins with faith and it continues with faith. By continuing day by day, trusting, having faith in God alone, doing what He says, abiding in Christ, dwelling in your relationship with Christ, spending time in God's Word and in prayer, seeking to obey His commands, knowing and obeying His commands, sharing our faith with others, confessing when we do sin, confessing and repenting of our sin, submitting to the Holy Spirit, which we're given when we're justified. This is the process we enter into when we are counted righteous, when we're justified. This is what Paul calls sanctification, purification. This is what it means to live the Christian life. This is so interesting to me. Living the Christian life is the process of becoming who God has already counted you to be. You are counted righteous. You're good to go. In God's eyes. But now you have to live it out. It's becoming who God has declared, who's counted to be. If, if you've been counted righteous, then you must live in such a way that you become righteous. And that brings us to the third way justification impacts our lives. So, so we begin by we're declared righteous, and then we live in this process of becoming righteous. And thanks be to God 
uh, if righteousness has been credited to your account, then one day you will become, and I don't know the word, I'm going to use the word fully, you'll become fully righteous. You'll become fully sanctified. You'll become pure and holy one day. When is that day? Well, the Apostle John wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now. We have been counted righteous. He's writing to the, to, the, to the believers. We've been counted righteous by God now. We've entered into relationship with God our Father now. We're His children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't know exactly everything, all the details. Somebody tries to tell you they know all the details of the future. Well, John didn't. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know exactly what we will become. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. It will not be until we see Christ face to face, until we meet our Savior upon death, that we become fully like Him. Then the righteousness in our account will be fully transferred into our lives. We will one day become what God has counted us to be in Christ Jesus. So that's what it means. That's the impact of our justification. First, we are now righteous, right before God. We can enter into relationship with Him. Relationship now and throughout all eternity. Second, we enter into this process of becoming righteous. Becoming who God has counted us to be. This is where most of us are right now. We're in that process of sanctification of growing in Christ, of abiding in Christ. And finally, we will one day, when we see Christ face to face, we will become fully righteous. We will become like He is. Not as, not as God, but we will become holy and pure before Him. No more sin. No more sorrow. No more tears. So that's the threefold meaning of, of justification in our life. The, when we were justified, the process, and then what it holds for us in the future. Now in verse 4 and 5, Paul goes on to then specify who receives this justification that we're talking about. Now in one sense, we already know the answer to this question. We know that Abraham and anyone else is only justified by God's grace through faith, through trusting in, in Christ. But now Paul will describe who it is Who are the people that will receive the grace? Who is the one that will have the faith? And the answer might surprise you, or or, or it might not. Paul now expands on this idea of righteousness being counted or credited to your account. He says there are two basic reasons you receive a credit. You have a bank account, there's two basic reasons you're going to put money into it. Either you work for it, or you're given it. Either it's wages or it's a gift. In verse 4, he describes the one who works for it. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his, but as his due. If you work, then you receive not a gift, but wages. Wages that you are owed. Wait, most of us have a job, and you know, uh, at the end of the week, month, we get our paycheck, and that's what we're due. We earn that. We're not... We're not, oh, thank you so much for for paying me because I worked hard for it. Wages are earned. There's an obligation to give them to you. They're your due. 
If you try to work then, therefore, for your justification, then you're trying to get God to owe you something. I worked really hard. For, Lord, I deserve it. Give this to me, Lord. It's mine. God would owe you justification if you could work for it. And when you get it, you would be able to say, I deserve this. I worked hard for this. But as Paul's already shown again and again, it's not possible for an unrighteous people to earn righteousness. And therefore, God offers a different way to be counted righteous. Verse 5, if you work, then you get wages. And, or, or I think but would be better, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice first Paul says, justification, righteousness is counted, is credited to the one who does not work. This is a little bit paradoxical, right? It seems absurd a little bit. This is not like most things in the world. This is not what our parents, this is not one of the values our parents instilled into us. As children, we're taught if you want something, you have to earn it, you have to work for it, you have to do your best for it. There are no free lunches, right? But this is not the case with justification. Those who will be counted righteous are those who do not work for their righteousness. Righteousness is given only to those who admit defeat. Who in humility surrender saying, I can't do it. I have no righteousness of my own. I must trust in the righteousness that only God gives. If you are in any way seeking to work or to earn your righteousness then you will not get it. You will not be counted righteous. Specifically, he says, those who don't work for it are the only ones that are going to get it. Justification is credited to those who don't work for it. But that doesn't mean everyone who isn't working for justification, there are a lot of people out there not working for justification, will be justified. You must also believe. You must also have uh, faith. Faith is required. Faith in God Faith in Christ. To the one who instead of working has faith in God for their justification. Or you could say to the one who trusts not in themselves, not in their ability to earn their own righteousness, but instead believes in God who by His grace provides righteousness not to those who work, but to the ungodly. To the unrighteous sinners. Not to the one who works, and it gets uh, worse or better, depending on your perspective, but to the ungodly. Notice who's justified by faith. Get this. Those who don't work but believe, and those who are ungodly. Again, the paradox jumps out, doesn't it? Our parents not only teach us that if, if we want something, we have to work for it. They also teach us if you want something, then you have to be good. Be good. Johnny, be good. And you'll get this. I remember uh, one Christmas, my parents said, if you want your Christmas presents this year, be good. Uh, Don't, which I apparently was famous for, don't go snooping around the house to find them before uh, they're wrapped. And what did I do as soon as my parents left the house? I went snooping around looking for my presents. And unfortunately for me, just as I found them in the back corner of the closet, in the upper corner of their bedroom closet, they came in the room and caught me. And that Christmas, I didn't get the presents I had found. 
because I disobeyed. I was not good. But Paul says that God, and there were some good presents there. I just want to say this. I still remember. But, but Paul says that God, I think they gave them to my cousin or something. It was like, so sad. But I didn't deserve it because I wasn't good. That's what we're taught. But Paul says that, that God justifies. He counts righteous the ungodly, the not good. Now granted, uh, as we've seen throughout our study, we all qualify for this. No one is righteous. No one does good. We are all sinners. We are all ungodly. But think about what that means, that God justifies. He saves the ungodly. It reminds me of Romans 5.8, famous verse where Paul also says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here in Romans 4, uh, 4, 4, 4, 4, 5, he's saying that God, by his loving grace, while we were ungodly and unrighteous sinners, he justifies us. He doesn't wait till we're good enough while we are ungodly He justifies us. And that, my friends, is such good news. It's the best news. Knowing that despite our sin, in spite of our unrighteousness, that if we believe, if we trust in God, if we stop trying to earn our justification and put our faith in Christ alone, then even in our sin and ungodliness, that God will then count us righteous. Credit righteousness to our account. This verse, uh, Romans 4 5, is the answer to those who believe that they can clean up their act before they come to Christ. That they must stop their, this sin or, or that sin before God will accept them. It's the answer to those who believe that, that the things they've done in their past are, are too awful to be forgiven. That God would never accept him. Paul says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies those who do not work, who don't try to clean up their act, so God will accept them. God justifies the ungodly, the unrighteous, the sinners who believe. If you are right now trying to earn God's favor in any way, to earn your own righteousness, if you're trying to clean up your act so God will accept you, uh, all I can say is knock it off. It's futile. Futile? Futile is a better way to say that. It's crazy according to God's Word. I mean, it's natural. It's It's what we feel like we should be doing. It's why every other religion in the world, that's what they do. But that's not what... Paul's teaching, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not why Christ came. If that was possible, if we, it was possible for us to earn our own righteousness, there would have been no need for the cross. When Jesus said, let this cup pass, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, God would have said, okay, there's a way. Uh, we'll just, you guys, you know, they, they, they need to earn it. And, and that'll be good. And you don't have to go to the cross. There was no other way. There's no point You in yourself can't do it. And God doesn't want you to try to those who don't work. Instead, He wants you to believe, to trust in Him, to to trust in the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as as a sacrifice on the cross. Believe and you'll be counted righteous. You'll be justified. 
You'll enter into this process of becoming who God has counted you to be. And you will one day become fully righteous. But in the beginning, in the beginning of the Christian life where justification happens, we are all ungodly. We are declared righteous by faith alone while we are still sinners, while we're still ungodly. Now think about the implications of this for a minute. If Christ died for us when we were sinners, if God justifies us when we are ungodly, then God will not reject us for our sin. Just read the, you know, go to Genesis. Start with Genesis 15-6, where God declares Abraham righteous, counts him righteous, and then read the dumb things Abraham does after that. The sinful things. The trusting in his own self. Including taking on another wife to have a kid, to, to sort of help God along with his promises. That's been a problem throughout history, Right? So often in our lives as Christians, we we sin, we fail, we do what is unrighteous, and and, and that somehow signals in our mind, ah, the enemy comes along and he says, "Uh, God doesn't love you. God can't forgive you. What you did, what you continue to do has disqualified you from relationship with God. And let me tell you, Uh, friends, brothers and sisters, those are lies from the pit of hell. Those are meant to sideline us, to take us out of relationship, out of fellowship with God. Because God justifies the ungodly. When you and I were ungodly, by His loving grace, He counted us as righteous. And He called us to enter into relationship with Him. And so when you sin, when you continue to be ungodly, He will not uncount you. He will not uncall you. He will not confiscate the righteousness He's credited to your account. He will not cancel the relationship He's established with you. Now that's not to say, this is where people get crazy sometimes, that's not to say that God is unconcerned with and that God doesn't hate our sin. He does. He hates it so much, He hates it so much that He allowed, He sent His one and only Son to die for it. That's how much God hates our sin. He hates it so much that He gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us so we can overcome our present sin. He hates it so much that the Bible says He disciplines those He loves. He hates it so much that He provides us with this process of sanctification, of becoming righteous, of growing to be less and less sinful and more righteous, more like Christ. And so as as we conclude this morning, I'd exhort each one of us, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if if you've yet to be counted righteous by God, if you've yet to to trust in Christ, then I'm going to call you all of those who are ungodly, to stop trying to earn, stop believing there's something you need to do to earn your righteousness, and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. To trust in Him and His finished work on the cross for your righteousness. And if, and if you've given your life to Christ, whether that's today or 20 years ago, if you've trusted in Him, 
if God by His grace has counted you, your faith as righteousness already, then never forget, don't, don't let it pass, don't let His, his act of, 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 of giving the ungodly, unrighte, uh, ungodly righteousness, never let that make you think He's not concerned about your sin. Know that He hates your sin. Seek to live in such a way that you're always in the process of becoming who God has already counted you to be. That's who God wants you to be. And so you should enjoy that process of growing in faith, of growing in righteousness, of being sanctified. Pray with me that God will give us the power and the desire to live in the righteousness that He's provided. That our lives will be characterized by the righteousness that God has credited to our account. Lord God, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your Word and and just the amazingness of, of what You've done for us. Lord, if there are those here who have yet to trust in You, I pray that You would not let them get up from their seat without doing that. Lord, that they would place their faith in You and be counted righteous. That they would enter into relationship with You. They would enter into that process of sanctification. Lord, and for each of us, who've trusted in you, I pray that we would do that on a daily basis. Lord, we would, we, as, our, as our feet hit the floor, we would cry out to you, Lord, make this a day where I grow in my righteousness, where, I, where, I take, uh, uh, where you transfer some of that and it impacts my life, Lord, that I become more like Christ. And thank you, Father. I praise you and worship you that one day, because of Christ, and, and when we see Christ, we will be like him. We will be fully righteous. We bless you for that. Thank you for that. In Christ's name.